This is Radio Parallax, a slightly different perspective from a slightly different view, with topics that include matters in science, technology, history, politics, current events, and whatever we damn well please. And now the host of Radio Parallax, Douglas Everett. So, I'm online the other day, and I come across an article that just really perked me right up. I started reading it and went, wow, this is so Radio Parallax material. It was an article in The Economist, and I started reading along, and, and you know how they do. And all of a sudden announces that if you want to read the complete article, sign up for The Economist, blah, blah, blah. Luckily for me and you, my dear listener, I have a subscription to The Economist. So I waited a couple days, and then the print edition appeared wherein I could read the entire article, and I'm going to read probably a substantial portion of it to you right now because, well, I think this one's a real grabber. Noted the magazine, Paradigm shift is an overused term. Properly, it refers to a radical change of perspective on a topic, such as the move from the physics of Newton to the physics of Einstein or the introduction of plate tectonics into geology. Such things are rare. Something which history may come to regard as a true paradigm shift does, however, seem to be going on at the moment in medicine. There is a recognition that the zillions of apparently non-pathogenic bacteria on and in human bodies, hitherto largely ignored, are actually important for people's health. They may even help to explain the development of some mysterious conditions. Now, we've talked at some length about this revelation that the bacteria in us and on us are a lot more important than anybody realized several times already, but actually wasn't ready for this one. Notes the next paragraph. One such condition is autism. These days, often called autism spectrum disorder, ASD, is characterized by repetitive, stereotypical, and often restricted behavior, such as head nodding, and by the difficulty those with it have in reading the emotions of and communicating with other people. These symptoms are notable in children from the age of two onwards. Currently in America, about one child in 59 is diagnosed with ASD. What causes ASD has baffled psychiatrists and neurologists since the syndrome was first described in the mid-20th century by Hans Asperger. But the evidence is pointing towards the bacteria of the gut. That suggestion has been reinforced by two recently published studies, one on human beings and one on laboratory rodents. Have I got your attention yet? This great mystery of autism, this epidemic of autism we're seeing in, uh, in Western societies might be related to the hitherto largely ignored gut bacteria. The piece goes on. The human study, the latest results of which came out a few weeks ago in scientific reports, is being conducted by Rosa Krasmanik-Brown of Arizona State University and her associates. It was prompted by earlier work in which Dr. Krajal McBrown and James Adams, a colleague at Arizona State, sequenced the DNA of gut bacteria from 20 autistic children to discover which species were present. They found that the children in their sample were missing hundreds of the thousands-plus bacterial species that colonize a, quote, neurotypical, unquote, person's intestines. 
One notable absence was Provitella, the bug which makes its living by fermenting otherwise indigestible carbohydrate polymers in dietary fiber. It's abundant in the alimentary canals of farmers and hunter-gatherers in places like Africa, rare in Western Europeans and Americans, and nearly non-existent in children with ASD. This discovery led to the idea that restoring the missing bacteria might alleviate autism's symptoms. Two years ago, they tested a process called microbiota transfer therapy, MTT, which frankly does sound a lot better than fecal transplants. Whatever you'd like to call it, they tested this on 18 autistic children ages between 7 and 16. Of their participants, 15 were regarded according to the Childhood Autism rating, rating Scale as having severe autism. Now, the magazine explains, MTT is a prolonged version of a process already used to treat infections by a bug called Clostridium difficile, which causes life-threatening diarrhea. It involves transplanting carefully prepared doses of fecal bacteria from healthy individuals to a patient. They go on to explain the methodology of how that was done, which I don't think we need to go into. Suffice it to say that one person's gut bacteria get put into another. Ten weeks after treatment started, the children's Provitella levels had multiplied 712-fold. In addition, those of other species, Bifidobacterium, had quadrupled. Bifidobacterium is what is known as a probiotic organism, something that acts as a keystone species in the alimentary ecosystem, keeping the mixture of gut bacteria healthy. Anyway, they describe increases in um, the levels of these various bacteria after doing this for a while. And they noted that crucially, these changes in gut bacteria have translated into behavioral changes. Even 18 weeks after treatment started, the children had begun showing reduced symptoms of autism. After two years, only three of them still rated as severe, while eight fell below the diagnostic cutoff point of ASD altogether. These eight thus now count as neurotypical. Now, this is a small study, and the statistics are not that compelling. If you do a larger study and you show that this works, well, you have something. But boy, is this interesting. The magazine notes that exactly how gut bacteria might contribute to autism is a puzzle, but light has been shed on the matter by the second study published this week in Cell by a team led by Sarkis Masmanian of the California Institute of Technology. Dr. Masmanian and a group of colleagues that also included Dr. Kajalmanik Brown performed a type of MTT on mice. They collected bacteria from the feces of both neurotypical and autistic people and transplanted these into hundreds of mice. They then interbred the recipient mice and studied the offspring of these crosses, animals that had picked up the transplanted bacteria from their mothers at birth. They were looking for the rodent equivalent of ASD, and they found it. Most of the young mice harboring gut bacteria from autistic human donors showed features of autism themselves. These included repetitive behaviors, reduced social and vocal communications with other mice, and restricted movement. In contrast, none of the mice colonized with bacteria from neurotypical people ended up autistic. Furthermore, the team discovered that the intensity of a human donor's autism was transferred to the recipient mice. If an individual's symptoms were severe, then so too were those of the mice that hosted his gut bacteria. Anyway, the piece goes on to describe the, some possible mechanisms of why this would be. 
and some suggestive evidence that, uh, well, this theory may be right, but that's not so important as the fact that, wow, there might be a cure on the horizon for autism based upon one's intestinal bacteria. Wow. And uh, God bless them over at The Economist. They had two other articles of note in their science and technology section, which I think we should make mention of. And isn't it nice to start off a program with science stuff that's kind of cool instead of dreary politics? Well, we think so. In what I have to say is a rather speculative piece, uh, some musings are done about astronomy and human evolution, two things that don't often go together. The next, that if a supernova went off near the Earth, that would be bad. From a distance of less than, say, 25 light years, the resulting bombardment of fast-moving atomic nuclei, known as cosmic rays, would destroy the layer of atmospheric ozone that stops most of the UV light from reaching the Earth's surface. And the combination of uh, cosmic rays and UV would kill a lot of life forms here on our planet. But if a supernova went off not quite so close by, that might be interesting. It would have effects, but more subtle ones. Indeed, a paper published in the latest edition of the Journal of Geology by Brian Thomas and Adrian Merlot suggests that a series of such stellar explosions might have nudged human forebearers down from the trees and onto their hind legs. The chain of events, these doctors proposed, starts with their observation that between 14 and 20 supernova have gone off in the Earth's vicinity over the past 8 million years. Well, there's, there's ways they can tell that. Uh, these, these explosions of young, massive stars are believed to have happened in the Tucana Horologium Stellar Group. I did not know that. Currently about 130 light years from Earth. Well, this is speculative, but apparently there's a lot of new stars, big, hot new stars in that, uh, in that cluster, which were, you know, candidates to become supernova. Peace notes that one reason for believing these supernova occurred is the shockwaves from them swept away nearby interstellar gas and the magnetic field which threads through that gas. This has led to our sun being embedded in what is known as the local bubble, a peanut-shaped void 300 light-years long, in which the vacuum of space is even emptier than normal, and which is bounded by a wall of somewhat denser gas and stronger magnetic fields. Once the local bubble got established and cosmic rays created by supernova within it would have bounced off the magnetic wall and back into the bubble, strafing every object within it, including the Earth. Some of these rays were the nuclei of a radioactive isotope of iron that is created almost exclusively in supernova. These unstable nuclei, together with their decay products, have been found in the ocean floor on Earth and in rock samples brought back from the moon. Another reason to believe that these supernova happened nearby. These isotopes found on Earth can be dated from the sediments they are in. The strongest signal is from 2.5 million years ago, indicating that this explosion was the closest. A geological feature that coincides with this period when the supernova bubble were presumably going off, is an incre increase in traces of charcoal and ocean sediment. That is evidence of wildfires on land. This increase starts about 7 million years ago and in turn coincides with a period when much of the Earth's vegetation shifted from forests to grasslands. The fires recorded by the ocean charcoal could explain this vegetational shift because grass is more resilient to fire than trees. 
What explains the fire, though, remains mysterious. The two astronomers propose that the culprit is cosmic rays from local supernova. The main arsonist of wildfires is lightning. The hammering of atmospheric molecules by these rays handed out, they suggest, caused more lightning. The rays would knock molecules apart, liberating electrons from their atoms. These liberated electrons would in turn knock loose others, creating a cascade that would make the air electrically conductive and would encourage lightning strikes. Observations made recently on a mountain in Armenia of electron cascades caused by normal cosmic rays showed that many of these indeed ended in a lightning flash. So, the idea is plausible. Doing some exotic math on this, the astronomers concluded that the effect of that cosmic ray explosion 2.5 million years ago would have set off a number of cascades. They conclude that the cascade rate would have increased 50-fold. And with 50 times the amount of lightning we see currently, well, that could have, could have caused a few forest fires. Perhaps more even than lit cigarettes or sparking electrical wires. Anyway, it's a rather tentative, crazy chain of evidence uh, con connecting supernova out in space to human evolution, but boy, that's the kind of speculations we enjoy. The third piece is worth talking about, but I'm going to defer that to later in the program because it's going to tie into some other articles. We asked on last week's program if someone out there knew something about those uh, yellow bumps you find in front of hardware stores and the like that <laughs> cause things to fall off of your shopping cart. And uh, we received a response from Joe, who is knowledgeable on this matter. He noted that he's familiar with the yellow, bumpy fiberglass composite safety flooring panels known as truncated domes. The short answer is that they are put there for the benefit of the visually impaired. It's to warn them that they're about to enter in an area that has traffic or other hazardous situations. He wrote to say he knew for sure if someone with a visual impairment was entering or leaving the Costco in Roseville, they'd be really, really aware of an impending change. And also found out the hard way when riding his bike through the UCSB campus years ago that they are very slippery when wet, which can't be good for the visually impaired or anybody else. Anyway, thank you for your reply, Joe. And we're glad that we can do what we can to perk up your commute between Cool and Auburn. <laughs> And someone else who sounded off on this issue of Scott Johnson, the lawyer who is uh, generating a lot of ill will for his lawsuits based on the ADA, was our own good friend and former KDBS radio host, Franz Kassing. Franz has some mobility issues and is very aware of, of, of the issue of remediations necessary for the disabled. And she had to express with sadness the fact that uh, Scott Johnson has done a lot of harm out there in creating just a lot of just ill will toward ADA regulations. Now, we're not going to say that public spaces did not need to be made more accessible to people with disabilities. They certainly did. And the ADA attempted to address that, uh, that matter. But, well, the law has some flaws in it, allowing, you know, certain scoff laws to go out there and raise up nuisance lawsuits. And the man whose name is synonymous with that in the Sacramento area, Scott Johnson, is being looked at by an awful lot of people as a guy who's getting his comeuppance now for you know his problems with the IRS, not declaring, uh, apparently, allegedly, the sums he was earning by those numerous lawsuits. 
Suffice it to say, in his court battles, we're not rooting for him. All right, and by way of follow-up, I would like to mention that according to The Economist, they have found the wreck of the Clotilda down in Alabama, which was that slave ship that left Africa in 1859, possibly, very possibly, the last slave ship to leave Africa, bringing fresh slaves to the American South. Aboard that ship was a man who later was known as Cujo Lewis, was interviewed in the 1920s by Zora Neale Hurston that became the book Barracoon, which we talked about on this show some months ago. The hope is they can raise the ship and turn it into some sort of a tourist attraction that will benefit the 2,000 people living in the community that, well, was based upon those very same slaves founded at the end of the Civil War when they were slaves no longer. Well, we hope they can pull that one off. And in another little bit of follow-up, we talked about the problems of the Boeing 737 on this show a few weeks ago. Apparently, I and everybody else was misled by some very bad reporting. I had a chance to discuss the matter with my flight instructor after tooling around the SAC metro area last weekend. And he told me he thought the the reporting on this was just bunk. And he, in fact, attributed these crashes to the pilots not being aware of how they could override the systems. He said this was, in his opinion, some bad piloting. And we'll probably have more to say about that in the future. But I need to get my facts a little more straight before I mouth off again. And the third item of follow-up I wanted to talk about is not in front of me at the moment. So we're going to put that one off till later in the show when that paperwork turns up. Let's instead talk about the fact that the Midwest of the United States of America has evidently experienced its wettest 12 months ever. The floods are worsening out there in America's Midwest, and in the past century, annual precipitation has risen by 10% across the region, a faster increase than for America as a whole. And because warmer air holds more moisture and can suddenly release it, precipitation is felt well, likely to keep rising as we experience global warming. This is causing a lot of politicians and scientists and other people in the area to say, you know, it's time we stopped denying climate change. As you mentioned in last week's program, Donald Trump remains as hostile as ever to the issue of climate change. The New York Times reported last week that his administration has told scientists not to include worst-case scenarios of climate change in the next projection due before 2020. Some were told not to make any forecasts for changes beyond 2040 when the biggest disruption is likely. Yet, note many sources, uh, voters can see what is happening firsthand just the same. And by way of criticism of NPR, which is not something we do a lot of on this program, I do, I do have to cite a piece I heard last weekend on the issue of how climate change affects us in negative ways. What they focused on in this particular uh, segment was how climate change was affecting national security. Their line of reasoning went something like this. The dew line, the distant early warning system set up back in the late 50s and early 60s to tell us if Soviet bombers carrying nuclear weapons are coming across the top of the continent to blow us to smithereens, Well, they set up a radar system so that, you know, we could supposedly shoot those planes down or send bombers back ourselves to do whatever, to blow them to smithereens, blah, blah, blah. The point of all this was that, my God, 
the radars are being damaged by the waves that used to be blocked by ice up there, and, and therefore we're, we don't have the warning system that we used to, or potentially we're seeing a drop in our eyes on the north. Now, we're not disputing the facts of this case. It may well be that, uh, that the radars are being damaged and, and that NORAD, who's supposed to protect us from Soviet bombers, uh, may not be seeing as well as they'd like to uh, north in Canada and toward the North Pole. But if you think this is actually going to make a difference in your future, it might be a good time to point out that if we do have a full-on nuclear war, the bombers that are coming across from Russia are going to be just taking out what targets the ICBMs have not already turned into radioactive Rice Krispies. A functioning distant early warning system is the last thing we should be worried about when it comes to, like, adverse climate change effects. By the way, when I related this news to my flight instructor, who back in the days when he was in the Air Force used to be involved in monitoring the USSR, he thought the whole thing was pretty hilarious. He said, any bombers that are coming over are just going to be trying to, you know, pick what targets are left. So as reporting goes, that NPR piece maybe wasn't so hot. But as, as comedy, uh, well, I think it, it's, it's right up there with Dr. Strangelove. And speaking of going toe-to-toe, nuclear-wise, with the Ruskies, I guess I need to report on my visit to the Stanford campus last week to hear a talk from the author, of the Doomsday Machine, none other than Daniel Ellsberg. He was appearing on the radio program that airs on KALW titled Philosophy Talk. Daniel Ellsberg uh, wrote a 600-page tome about uh, this issue of nuclear planning and its, and its, its unbelievable insanity. And his credentials, well, both for being A, a cold warrior, and B, a whistleblower, are impeccable. He explained to the audience at Stanford and to the radio audience and to anyone who is going to ever tune into that, that program that, well, the fact of the matter is we'd like to believe that it's only the president of the United States that has the capability of starting a nuclear war. But the fact of the matter is that has never been reality. Both our side and their side have always realized that if you did a first strike and took out the leadership, you, you'd win the war. Therefore, they had to decentralize the decision-making on how to attack the other party, uh, make it much more generalized, much more lower level, so that you could not have this, you know, in essence, decapitation attack. And boy, oh boy, is there a lot of doom and gloom in this discussion, but they got Daniel Ellsberg talking about possible solutions to this matter, at least things that would make us safer. And one way to do this would be to take the ICBMs that we still have left. There's a lot less than we used to have, but as Ellsberg points out, the difference between, you know, shooting off 1,000 nuclear warheads versus 30,000 nuclear warheads doesn't make that much difference in the end. You're going to ignite all the cities of the world on fire. You're going to cause a nuclear winter, and, you know, that's going to be pretty much game, set, match. I was hoping for many years now to have a discussion with Mr. With Dr. Ellsberg about this, and he, as we've said before, has promised us twice that he would appear on this program to discuss both his previous book and the most recent one. But it did occur to me, listening to the discussion as it unfolded on Philosophy Talk, that we probably should skip over a lot of the doom and gloom and address what can we do about this now. And Ellsberg did 
tried to stress that at the, at the behest of his hosts, and also had a little political aside, which I think is worth mentioning, which is that we have this, these high hopes that if we can get some other leadership in Washington besides the current crop, we may see um, less militarism, we may see a more sane policy, but how many of the leading Democrats who, would seeking, who are seeking the presidential office, um, how many of them have come forward to say, there's just no way we're going to back a war in Iran, period, end of story? Well, I think one has, Tulsi Gabbard, but we're not hearing that from the likes of Joe Biden now, are we? By the way, Joe Biden and Hillary Clinton voted, voted for the war in Iraq. I, that, we need to be reminded of that from time to time. The current plans of the Pentagon are to rebuild, rebuild the system set up during the Cold War. Not dismantle it, but to rebuild it. I think it should be clear that nobody, but nobody, but nobody is going to benefit from that, eh, with the possible exception of the people that are making money by building the stuff. But we are talking about an awful lot of money, and we are talking about an awful lot of political clout and lobbying potential. So unfortunately, there is cause to be pessimistic that we're going to see any major change, but good Lord, we do need to push for this. You take a break in a moment. We need to lighten the the mood just a little bit. So um, let's change subjects rather dramatically. And uh, well, let me ask you this, my dear listener. did Did you go out and buy one of those apparatuses that you strap on that tells you how many steps you walk? I know a couple people that, that have bought these and they think it's making them fitter. Which leads me to an article titled, 10,000 Steps a Day? Question mark. How many do you really need to boost longevity? Article by Peter Muller notes that new research shows that daily light walking is important for maintaining health as you age. But if you can't hit 10,000 steps, don't worry. There's nothing magical about the number 10,000. In fact, the idea of walking at least 10,000 steps a day for health goes back decades to a marketing campaign launched in Japan to promote a pedometer. And in subsequent years, it got adopted in the U.S. as a goal to promote good health. It's often the default setting on fitness trackers. But what's it really based on? They quote researcher I Min Lee of Brigham and Women's Hospital is saying, the original basis of the number is not scientifically determined. She was curious to know how many steps you really needed to maintain good health. And so they designed a study that included about 17,000 older women, average age of 72, uh, who agreed to clip on wearable devices to track their steps. It turned out the women who took about 4,000 steps per day got a boost in longevity compared to women who took fewer. The math was that women who took 4,400 steps per day on the average were 40% less likely to die during the follow-up period of about four years compared to women who took just 2,700 steps. Another surprise was the benefits of walking maxed out at about 7,500 steps. In other words, women who walked more than 7,500 steps per day saw no additional boost in longevity. So the good news is that uh, there's probably more benefit to light activity than we previously realized. And the further good news is you don't have to worry about getting in your 10,000 steps. I got curious as to what distance we're talking about in terms of 10,000 steps. I know that yours truly can pace out a mile with exactly 1,000 paces, which is 2,000 steps, I guess. So if 2,000 steps for me, assuming I'm only a little bit bigger than the 
average female in this test is a mile, then 10,000 steps works out to about five miles. But since it turns out you only got to do 40% of that, then it looks like just walking two miles a day gets you a boost in longevity. And now you know the rest of the story. But if someone is bragging to you about the 10,000 steps that they, they walked uh, using their Fitbit or whatever, uh, just you may want to point out to them that this is about as accurate as the notion that you have to wait one hour after eating before entering the water or risk severe cramps which as we talked about in Radio Parallax is, is simply not true. Also the fact that we only use about 10% of our brain, which, which although it's probably true in, in the case of some people I can think of, it's not true overall for most humans. And that notion that you got to drink eight glasses of water a day, somebody just made that up. All right, we definitely need to take a break at this point. Let us do so. We have quite a bit more in our second segment, so please don't go away.